I'm joined here today with uh, Jess Berenson Shaw, uh, joining me all the way from Wellington, New Zealand. Jess, thank you for joining me today. Kia ora, Steve. So, can you tell me a little bit about the work that you do at the workshop, um, your organisation that you are one of the people involved in? Um, tell us a little bit about the workshop. Cool. So there's a, there's a little bit of a story behind the workshop, which I think is always good to tell. Um, my background is I'm a, a failed academic in some ways, or maybe just an escapee academic. Um, I started my career in um, public health, really, and population health, which is, you know, really this investigation of the ideas of how we create health through the conditions of society. And mm -hmm. I spent a lot of years researching that and kind of moved sideways, was always really fascinated in how does evidence um, really get into the decision-making process? And a lot of my interest, obviously, is in government kind of policy-making. Um, that's where the big levers exist. And so it's been a lot of time in this space of really thinking, how can we get um, kind of knowledge at the heart of people's decision-making? And it's been, I would say, a few kind of... Uh, frustrating years which is a really common feeling and emotion that a lot of people in this space have where we felt like what we had been saying we'd been saying for a number of years decades even and we weren't really getting traction and you know one one kind of pathway to take when that happens is that you you kind of dig down and become even more adamant about the facts and the evidence and talking about that constantly more but the pathway I chose to took take was really kind of indicative of who I am as a person which is a really curious person and also my original um, background which is in health psychology actually so always fascinated by you know kind of the internal processes and decision making of people and why people do what they do and at that point I really started to investigate well why is it why does it become so difficult to get people to understand you know what is this best knowledge that is ultimately that the most common sense things that we could do in our world especially around public health think about climate change you know these big meaty issues in our world a lot of responding to that actually doesn't feel like it should be political it feels like it just should be the kind of the the thing that we should do and I really came interested in kind of the both the psychology but also the kind of cultural factors that really influence why it is that people um, will take on board certain types of information and while they reject other types of information and so I kind of became the sidestep in my career really and I met Marianne Elliott who's my co-director and she was running an organization here in New Zealand called Action Station which is a little bit like get up in Australia, actually it's a sister organization of Get Up. And she really came from the, I guess, the same mountain, but a different side where she knew that talking about facts and evidence wasn't sufficient, it wasn't enough. Um, and she kind of understood that narrative and she'd done a lot of work around narrative, but what she was seeing was that um, particular types of narratives were more or less effective at the kind of big meaty kind of change that kind of the transformations that a lot of the knowledge tells us we need to make so we really saw a gap 
um, there's a lot of international work going on in what we call the kind of framing and values space for knowledge. Okay. Yep. Um, people like Annette Schenker-Osorio, um, organisations like Common Cause in Australia and in the UK, a lot of organisations, um, frameworks, for example, in the US, were starting to do this work. But here in New Zealand, it was a relatively unknown area. And so we started the workshop really um, to fill that gap and to offer people kind of a little bit more hope, I think, that there are ways in which knowledge and deep knowledge systems and kind of uh, information about transformative systems can actually be communicated to people in ways that feel and are, in fact, more motivating. So that's what we do at the, at the workshop. We both do... Um, teaching so we kind of teach the principles around our expertise we do consulting work but we also do a large amount of primary research ourselves so that's where we're actually trying to understand where people's understandings currently come from the kinds of cultural narratives that might exist that hold current systems in place and then what kinds of frames language metaphors different ways of communicating can work to surface different understandings in people. You must be having an absolute ball at the moment watching things like mask wearing behaviour um, and how that's playing out around the world in response to the coronavirus. And I'm thinking particularly some of the, some of the discussions that are going on um, in the United States at the moment. Yeah, look, it's it's fascinating for me as I, I kind of call myself a, a reformed evidence agitator because I was so I was a person who was um, so absolutely convinced that if we just could talk about the evidence, um, right. then people would understand it. And I came from I spent a lot of years actually working for um, uh, what's called um, kind of clinical based or um, evidence based medicine. So I. Um, spent a lot of years with specialists and expertise um, around um, published trials and research in healthcare particularly and trying to figure out, you know, what was the gold standard of health and what would we know? So a lot of the conversations that are going around COVID are really familiar to me because they are people yeah. who are deeply passionate about evidence, deeply passionate about what works or what doesn't work, but really in lots of ways are missing some key skills around how we can have better conversations about that evidence. So I think it's more like that I watch and, and see these kind of really um, quite predictable patterns, I guess, play out in the way that we talk about what we should or shouldn't be doing, um, which is both a little bit frustrating, I think, for me, but also quite fascinating as somebody who's curious and interested in researching this sort of stuff. I mean, changing the way that we talk about these things, though, can work, right? You, you will have seen that. Can you tell us a little bit about where you've seen a, a shift in that narrative have that kind of impact and, and yeah. shifting those behaviours? I mean, one a really great example, which I think particularly Australians um, will know about, is the marriage equality campaign, actually, that was run in Australia. Okay. So... Um, initially, the marriage equality campaign for lots of years had done a lot of very traditional communications when we are trying to enact um, kind of large scale social change, which is really important. The issues of human rights and justice, um, you know, these are deeply um, important issues which affect people's lives in really critical ways. And 
traditional communications in the space often involves talking about the facts. For example, um, a, a classic that we often talk about is jumping in to myth bust the incorrect story that's being told, and especially um, in areas you'll hear really not just incorrect, but incredibly hurtful stories being told. And traditional communications might involve a kind of just a really gut response, which is I need to correct that information. So we, we, we respond in, by jumping into that story and negating that kind of story. Yep. We might lead with a kind of language of human rights, and which is incredibly important framework, but the language of human rights, unfortunately, for large groups of kind of what we would call middle people who aren't necessarily personally affected by an issue, isn't language that really opens a side door for them. It doesn't, it's not, doesn't create an invitation for them to think about this issue. So what actually happened with that campaign is we saw a shift and the shift that we saw had a couple of things going on with it. They used values very clearly. So values are the large part of what we talk about. And the yep. reason we talk about values a lot and rely very heavily on values is because of the science around human motivation. And we are incredibly motivated by the things that matter to us most, the kind of why of life. So I think about values as the sorts of things like, it's really important to me that I take care of my children. It's really important that I care for the environment. Um, you know, a sense of justice is really important to me. Creativity. These are the kinds of big meaty things that we aspire to. And what cognitive researchers and social researchers have shown is that ultimately at the heart of what motivates everything that we do are these values. So there's often right. operating at a really implicit level. But it's our values which will allow us or to kind of step into a conversation about something, to consider knowledge or information about something, and in the same way our values which will shut down a conversation about something which we don't have experience of or we have pre-existing beliefs about. And I talk a lot about um, people's sort of fast brains here, and you'll, you'll know perhaps Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, yeah. yep. which is that often in our fast thinking system, which is a very functional system, it helps us get through the world we shut down very quickly to new information that doesn't fit with our kind of existing knowledge base and our okay. current values so what the marriage equality campaign did was engage um, a very particular set of values which was love actually it recognized mm. that the kind of key people that they needed to move was this kind of group of middle australians who perhaps weren't directly affected by uh, the marriage equality or inequality that was currently in existence, but they yep. would be key in voting for it. Right. And what was really important to, um, to these people, actually, and a lot of them were kind of heterosexual couples, perhaps, who were in marriages themselves, was love. They knew that love was this incredibly important thing. Okay. And love is this kind of enduring, what we call mature love is this really enduring value in a lot of our lives. And so by using, and the, the catchphrase they used, and you might recognize it was love is love. And uh, by really engaging people in those values, which they could relate to, it suddenly became a campaign, which is about the things that really mattered to people. And yep. that kind of opened a pathway for people to think about marriage equality in terms that were really about our key motivations. 
And they did a, a, another couple of things as well in there. So, so values are really important, but there was also a really high level of discipline in that campaign. So right. often what, because we exist in a really noisy information environment, you know, just think of all of the different types of information that you get in your life every day. Mm. And sometimes when we're in campaigning mode or we're looking to kind of achieve change, um, we might not recognize all of the different types of messages that are out there in that information environment. And so we add our message in and we might have a, somebody with similar goals who has a slightly different message and somebody else who has a slightly different message again. And so it, it becomes more of a cacophony, I guess. And what right. we need when we're kind of attempting to overcome some of the dominant thinking, which people's fast thinking systems might um, just kind of grab onto. So to overcome some of those dominant narratives that exist in society, those really shallow ways of thinking, hmm. needs a real movement behind the kind of communications and narrative and frames. And so that's where the kind of discipline comes in, where you've got really a, a kind of a, in New Zealand, we talk about a flotilla of waka, so waka uh, Māori canoe, um, all really paddling in the same direction. And, and so right. that's key as well to some of this narrative work that we do is understanding that, that information environment and where our, where our language and communications land in that. Yeah, okay. What are then, so we, we, you spoke there about the marriage um, equality campaign in Australia. What are some of those... Um, major sort of complex issues that you're sort of looking at or, or, or talking about at the moment? Yeah, so we do a huge range. Like, I think that's what's just really um, slightly surprised me, I think, is that mm. this is work that people from every area are sort of just fascinated by and engaged mm. in. So we have done work in the climate change space, talking about climate change, Yep. Um, we've done work in, we call it transport mode shift. So this this need for us to um, shift out of cars essentially and yes. into active and public transport. Yep. How do we, which I don't know what it's like in Australia, but it's incredibly controversial here in New Zealand and very politicised. We are a very car-centric society here in yep. Australia. Yep. Um, we romanticise cars and our public infrastructure is quite obviously geared towards the use of cars as okay. private transport so yeah. yeah yeah which is exactly the same in New Zealand and you know that is something that hasn't happened by chance yeah. um, you know there are agents involved in that and by agents I mean you know there are industry behaviors that have led to that and the car itself is hugely associated with people's sense of self and identity um, the values you know I talked earlier about values there are real values which the car industry people in the car industry have been particularly great at using yes. Yep. And their communications, you know, the, the value of freedom, freedom. was something that yes. has driven the car yes. industry for and their success for, for yep. you know, decades, very yes. successfully. And one of yep. the things I would say about that is that they have been incredibly disciplined about that. They have yes. used a very disciplined approach around the type, engaging the types of values and then ultimately the types of emotional experiences that people associate with cars. Yeah. And so in some ways, you know, the, the work that we do is about um, turning the similar kind of approaches and strategies 
um, that people like the car industry have used on their head and using them for kind of social movements. And in fact, when we um, looked at the literature and some of the research and evidence around how do we talk about transport mode shift, something that was really interesting to me that came up was that if we're thinking about um, e-bikes and perhaps transition into e-bikes and the kinds of yep. infrastructure that we might need to support more e-bikes is values around freedom were probably going to be really useful. Yep. And I don't know if you've ridden an e-bike, but I have to say the first time I got on one was just the most joyful, fun, freeing yes. experience. I mean, I just ride a pedal bike most of the time around Wellington, which is yep. great. So there's a huge amount of freedom. Yeah, yep. but an e-bike, and it was a whole nother layer of kind of um, just enjoyment and, yep. and accessibility for the city. So... You know, I think it is interesting to me that we can look perhaps to some of those strategies and tactics and think about how can we marshal them for the kind of big missions and goals that we, that our, um, our I guess our global community is facing and yeah. um, COVID was a good example of that, right? We were fascinated in Australia um, by the last federal budget in New Zealand, um, what was positioned as a well-being budget, um, I think, would be the, the best way to describe it. That that struck me, and I know it struck many others, as a significant shift in narrative. Um, would you would you agree with that? Yeah, look, the well-being work is fascinating, and I have been involved in it on the kind of periphery for some mm -hmm. years, not in a narrative context, but in part of my other work, I do a lot of research around poverty and inequality okay. um, as, a, as a policy researcher, mm -hmm. um, because one of the things about being a narrative researcher is it's really important to understand what the best knowledge actually says about things, if you're going to talk about yes. them. Yep. Um, and, you know, one of the things that... The, the language of well-being had been there and had been being pushed for a long time mm. and suddenly a window opened and there was the opportunity to jump through it. We, we had a treasury that um, was led by someone who was particularly interested in it and we had a government come on board who was particularly interested in it. So one of the things I think the lessons from that is that it's really important to marshal your kind of energies for the long haul in some ways, waiting for that opportunity. So if we have everything in place, we've got good narrative and, and we've got a good understanding of the kind of values and the structures that need to change, it won't always force the change immediately. But the when the opportunity arises, people will be able to jump through that window. And that is really what happened with the well-being work. I would say, you know, the well-being work has got really years ahead of it yet to really come to fruition. And, and I yeah. think there is some, um, you know, it's still in real infancy stages. And what I see is kind of the next work, because I often talk about how important narrative is, but it's not enough. It's not sufficient. Narrative is incredibly important to shifting how people think, and it really does reframe yep. for people the world around them and the types of systems that they think are possible 
in the world, which is incredibly important when we're thinking about transformation. Yep. But driving that narrative through decision-making is really in the next stage to it. So how, not, how do we just talk about well-being and the types of values that we might come bring to bear on what does that mean if we were to move away from just GDP and growth and all of the kind of negative aspects of GDP to actually thinking about well, what are the outcomes that we do care about and we do want to measure, yep. then you need to kind of go the next step and think about what are the values that would actually need to be brought to bear on decision making there? You know, what are the types of um, collective uh, values that would lead to um, different metrics, especially around what we currently have, because metrics are so important. Yes. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting kind of initial case study of you start with a language and there, where do you go from there? You know, what, what, how do you take it that much further? It was, it was certainly a refreshing shift away from pure finance pure economic metrics um a positioning that was you know much more aligned with i think the way a lot of people view their surroundings and their neighbors um you know uh we we don't like to see our neighbors suffering we don't like to see the people around us doing without we don't like to see people battling with depression or battling with poverty or battling with domestic violence, um, you know, to name three elements or three aspects of, of well-being, um, to have a government overtly talking about those things as being the things that we're after rather than we're after jobs as though, you know, like jobs in themselves are the answer mm. or that economic growth uh you know gdp growth yeah. in itself is the answer um as though it's an end in itself um that actually those things should be getting us to a better quality of life a better view of ourselves being better people um, being better versions of ourselves whatever that looks like um that that should be the point you know if yeah. we're going to invest that that should be the point and it's a fascinating, you know, the economic narratives are fascinating, right? Like, mm. so all of the things that go into um, the ideas that we have about what the economy is, is this kind of separate entity of which we kind of serve for its own purposes and that must be kind of fed. Sometimes we talk about it like it's a weather system, you know, we need yep. to weather the storms of the economy. It's this, mm. And... And yet the entire other story, which is we know to be true, is that the economy is simply made up of interactions between people and the use of resources and the types of activities that we measure. And, and really the economy is there to serve people's well-being, right? And I think that's right. what yep. that's what the well-being um, kind of narrative is really catching on to. I think we haven't quite made the leap to talking about the economy in different ways. So for example, here in New Zealand, I noticed there's still a lot of talk in our kind of, you know, we're in a, obviously in a better position currently than Australia in terms of managing uh, the pandemic. And mm -hmm. now there's a lot of talk about economic growth and jobs, even from the Labor government, because we sure. don't have a particularly well-articulated, well-practiced um, narrative around what does it look like to construct an economy which actually serves people first? What does it look like to construct an economy that serves the environment first? Yep. And what does it look like to shape 
markets, for example, in a way which will get those outcomes. So I would mm. say that there is still some maturing of the narrative that needs to happen around yeah. um, thinking about what economics is, what the economy is, all yeah. of those sorts of things. Yeah. And there's still a very strong bent to our thinking in terms of the economy. And New Zealand, like Australia, is a capitalist democracy um you know so the idea of wealth creation and wealth extraction are still key underlying assumptions about our economy rather than standard of living um or you know mental well-being as a, a core outcome of the economy or you know physical well-being as a core outcome of the economy it, it really is more around wealth creation and yeah. extraction still yeah. Yeah. yeah, and those Production are um, and consumption, and... and those are really foundational stories. Like we often talk about these kind of foundational myths or stories, which will inform a lot of the kind of the worldviews and assumptions and mental models that are brought to bear on a particular policy issue. Yes. And you know, part of part of our work at the workshop really is to help make visible a lot of these invisible um, kind of myths and narratives and worldviews and assumptions that are driving a lot of decision making. Because yep. one of the things I find really interesting, though it's not really surprising, is that uh, people make a whole lot of assumptions about um, that you just present evidence and data and that that will be seen and that is the thing which informs our decision making and sure. these invisible forces around the kind of foundational stories and myths and how we believe the world is constructed and who it's for values even these are all often left to the side and not even seen so we do a lot of work with policymakers and mm. taking them through exercises where we try to get them to identify some of these invisible forces um, is a fascinating process like really fascinating for some people really comfortable and what i would say yeah. is that for indigenous people this is you know, this is nothing new. This is this is part of often the cultural belief system, which mm -hmm. is already in existence in a lot of indigenous cultures. I would say possibly in Western cultures, um, it has been there in the past and it's lost dominance. It still lies there, our ability to see what we call systems or mm -hmm. see the invisible, but it needs exercising like a muscle. And yep. so um, part of our work is, is lifting people's gaze to these kind of upstream conditions, these systems, these invisible forces, mm -hmm. and really getting them to try and grapple with them and see them. That's great. Jess, we'll have to leave it there, um, but we are so looking forward to hearing more in late August when you join us for UX Australia. Uh, but for now, thank you so much, and we, uh, we hope to hear from you again very soon. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Steve.